Welcome to the sermon podcast of Northridge Presbyterian Church in Dallas, Texas. I'm Betsy Sweetenberg, the pastor here, and I hope that in this podcast, you see what we seek to do week after week, approaching the stories of our faith with a holy curiosity, not shutting the book because the stories are hard or there are truths we'd rather ignore. Instead, approaching scripture, trusting that God will meet us there, full of grace and truth, teaching us something new about how we are to live in this world God so loves. Let's pray. Oh God, we give you thanks for your living and life-giving word. We give you thanks even though sometimes the word you have for us can be hard to hear. So we give you thanks that your scriptures attest to your grace again and again and again. And we ask that that grace holds us now, even as your word holds up a mirror confronting us with hard news about who we are. In your son's name we pray. Amen. When was the last time you told someone they were wrong? Was it in the midst of a conversation where someone used an inaccurate fact? Was it your child who, however old they may be, misrepresented something that you'd said very clearly? Was it in a conversation with someone who disagrees with you about immigration, economics, faith, the Middle East, presidential candidates, climate change? Was it to a leader who made a choice that you disagree with? Was it to your spouse who did the exact opposite of what you thought y'all had very clearly agreed on? Today, our scripture is the story of the prophet Nathan telling King David that he's wrong. And David is someone who gets things right most of the time. This is the same David who, as a young boy, defeated the giant Goliath with nothing but his trusty slingshot and a pebble. As a child, even, Scripture makes a point to tell us David got it right. And defeating Goliath was just the start of many times of David getting it right. Scripture tells us that he was brilliant. He led Israel's military strategy and city planning efforts. Jerusalem was David's idea. It was David who made Jerusalem the capital of Israel and united the kingdom. And let me tell you, that was no smaller feat in David's day than it is today. That's the kind of remarkable leadership we're talking about. And David's talents were not confined to military strategy and the realm of politics. David was an artist. He could play the lyre like nobody's business. And we know that he could write the most beautiful prayers because how many of the Psalms are attributed to David? David did a lot that was right. Scripture tells us so. Scripture tells us he was God's anointed one. In fact, the the book of 1 Kings even tells us how to remember David. It says this, David did what was right in the sight of the Lord. 
and did not turn aside from anything he commanded him all the days of his life, except in the matter of Uriah the Hittite. Now that is pretty high praise, almost unblemished praise, except for that ending, except for Uriah the Hittite. And so today's scripture of Nathan telling David he's wrong will make no sense if you don't know what happened between David and Uriah. So here's a little bit of um, the backstory for you. Uriah was one of David's men. He was a loyal soldier in David's army. And Uriah was married to a woman named Bathsheba. And she was a beautiful woman. And one day David was up on top of his house where he had a lovely rooftop garden and he went up there and he's pacing back and forth and he's thinking about the military strategy and hoping that the fresh air is going to inspire him to think of an idea he hasn't had yet. But soon after he gets up there and starts walking around, he gets distracted because just across the way there is a beautiful woman sunbathing. It turns out it was Bathsheba. And David was immediately captivated by Bathsheba. He couldn't focus on anything but her. So, Scripture tells us, he sent his messengers out to bring her to him. Now, that is a vague but loaded sentence, and it means everything you think it could possibly mean. Not too long after Bathsheba was brought to David, Bathsheba sent some messengers of her own to David. She had some important news for him. I am pregnant. Now those are three words that will change your life. David was mortified. But he wasn't mortified enough to turn off the part of his brain that did what he was so good at doing, strategizing. And so immediately he began strategizing a way to cover up his mistake. Maybe there was a way to make Uriah think that this child was his own, he thought. If Uriah had a romantic getaway with his wife one weekend, then maybe he wouldn't think twice about her pregnancy. The problem with that, though, is that Uriah, as I said, was a soldier, and he was deployed at the time, and before soldiers went off to fight, they had to take a vow of celibacy so that they would stay focused on the task at hand. But David, as commander-in-chief, thought that he would hold enough sway over Uriah so that Uriah could break this vow. So David sends off an order to have Uriah brought back home. And Uriah, loyal soldier that he was, complies. And he comes back to Jerusalem immediately. But he will hear nothing of David's command to go visit his wife. David doesn't give in so easily. So he tries again the next day, and he invites Uriah to go visit his wife. But Uriah is unwilling to even tempt himself from breaking this vow of celibacy. So David is forced to go on to plan B, and he invites Uriah to supper, thinking, if I just serve enough wine, then he will gladly stumble home to his wife. 
Now Uriah accepts the invitation and he comes and he has a wonderful evening and he enjoys himself. He never lets his wine glass sit empty. But as the end of the night comes, he still refuses to go home to Bathsheba. Now David is not one to back down from a challenge, but he realizes that Uriah's loyalty will not be compromised no matter what he comes up with. And so he changes strategies altogether and he sends a note to Uriah's commander, Joab. And it says this, put Uriah on the front lines as tensions rise. And when the fighting gets really intense, have all the other men draw back so that Uriah is struck down and dies. As preacher Barbara Brown Taylor says, remember that the next time someone commends the Bible as a wholesome guide to family values. Joab followed the plan, and Uriah was indeed killed in battle, leaving Bathsheba a pregnant widow. She goes into mourning, and when her mourning is over, she marries King David and gives birth to their son. And this is where we pick up the scripture reading for today, which comes from the 12th chapter of 2 Samuel. And I just want to say before I read this that there are some scriptures in the Bible that make it really hard for me to say thanks be to God when we get to the end. And I find this to be one of them, and you'll see why shortly. So listen now to what the Spirit is saying to her church this day. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. And the Lord sent Nathan, a prophet, to David. Nathan came to David and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He brought it up, and it grew with him and with his children. It used to eat of his meager fare and drink from his cup and lie in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was loath to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the wayfarer who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared that for the guest who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. He said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. He shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Nathan said to David, you are the man. Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you as king over Israel and I rescued you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your bosom and gave you the house of Israel and of Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and have taken his wife Bathsheba to be your wife and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, for you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, I will raise up trouble against you from within your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight, 
for you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and in broad daylight. David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan said to David, Now the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. When was the last time you were Nathan? When was the last time you told someone that they were wrong? Now, I haven't ever had to confront someone about breaking three commandments in short order. Thou shall not commit adultery, thou shall not covet, thou shall not kill. But I have had plenty of practice being Nathan. It's not that hard to find opportunities to follow Nathan's lead, telling another, you are the man. Can't you see it? You can't be in relationship with other humans without being confronted by the choice to point out how they get it wrong. Whether it's something as inconsequential as a child putting their shoes on the wrong feet or something as substantial as David's coveting, committing adultery, and killing. And Nathan has a lot to teach us about how to have a hard conversation with someone who is clearly in the wrong. Did you notice that he doesn't throw punches at David, though it would have been understandable if he had? Instead, he tells a story. He gives David the chance to let his guard down because it's always easier to hear a story about how someone else got it wrong than to be confronted with how you got it wrong. Nathan offers us a masterclass in constructively and graciously delivering hard news. But I don't think that that is the most poignant example for us in this text. I think that David's example is even more important for us. Because in my experience, it's easier to be Nathan and say, you were wrong, than it is to be David and say, I was wrong. And that's why this story is so important to us, because David not only hears what Nathan is saying to him, but he also discovers it for himself. He comes to the conclusion and he says, I have sinned against the Lord. In other words, I was wrong. And those three seemingly simple words change David's future. David condemned himself to death because he felt so deeply the guilt for his actions. But after he confesses, Nathan says, wait, death is not what God has in mind for you. The Lord has put away your sin and you shall not die. I was wrong. Those three words saved David's life, quite literally. That's the power of confession. When we offer prayers of confession and worship, it's a chance for us to begin saying, I was wrong. It's a chance to practice those three little words, trusting that when we say them, a new path forward will be open to us. 
One of my seminary professors told me a story one day from her early years on staff at a church. There was a man who always sat alone in the sanctuary. No one really knew him, and he also didn't give the impression that he wanted to be known by anyone. He would come in usually a couple minutes after worship started and quickly leave through a side door. One Sunday, as Martha scanned the sanctuary from the chancel, she noticed that the man was teary-eyed, but she didn't get a chance to flag him down after worship. She paid attention to him the next week and noticed that he was teary again, and she saw it again and again and again. So one week, she finally bolted after worship and cornered him before he could make it out the door without speaking to anyone. She told him that she'd noticed his tears and asked what was going on. Oh, I can't make it through the, the prayer of confession without crying, he said. Not expecting that to be his response, she asked another que question. Why's that? I squandered everything, he said. I ruined my marriage. I spent everything we had. My children won't speak to me. And this prayer each week is the only thing that gives me the strength to face the week ahead. I need it because it's helping me believe that God may actually forgive me too. Now, I have no idea what went on to happen in that man's life, but I'd like to believe that the practice of saying I was wrong at church eventually gave him the strength to say I was wrong to his family, because I imagine that was probably even harder to do than to say I was wrong at church. It's one thing to say those words in the safety of a sanctuary and joining our voices with others, but it's another thing to go home and look your spouse in the eye and say, I was wrong. It's another thing to go look your child or your best friend or your business partner in the eye and say, I was wrong. I think part of that is because we know we can trust God's forgiveness, but we can't control the reactions or the impulses of others, which sometimes is enough to make us shy away from saying those words, I was wrong altogether. But I love this story because this man was so clear that those three words each week opened a future for him. Now, it would be nice if saying I was wrong and getting the news you will live was the end of the story. But as you heard, Nathan's message didn't stop with that good news. Nathan tells David that he will live, but then he goes on to say that David's child would die because in conceiving him, David had utterly scorned the Lord. And that is why I find it so hard to say thanks be to God for this scripture. A child dying for his father's sin is unfathomable to me. I can't explain it to you, and I don't even want to try. Because quite frankly, the thought of my own child dying for either of his parents' sins makes me sick to my stomach. So it's hard to know how to make sense of this scripture. But I can tell you this. God has granted us the freedom to decide how we will live in this world, and with that freedom comes responsibility. 
I do believe that God wants us to act in ways that encourage life and life abundant for ourselves, for our children, for our neighbors, for our entire creation. And what we know from this story is that David used his free will in death-dealing ways. And actions have consequences. And David was stuck with lifelong consequences for some of his actions. Now that still doesn't solve the problem of his firstborn child suffering for his wrongdoings. But the good news is that I don't think we have to solve that problem to get to the good news of this scripture. David lived. That's the good news. Even after he pronounced his own death sentence, David lived. That's the power of those three little words, I was wrong. When we recognize it, as individuals, as a community, as a nation, God doesn't turn away from us. As Barbara Brown Taylor says, the moment we know we are lost and say it out loud, God can hear us and find us and take us home. Things were never the same for David after the matter of Uriah the Hittite. There were lasting consequences to what he had done. But he lived. God took him back and gave him new opportunities to exercise his God-given freedom. He and Bathsheba went on to have a second son named Solomon, who ruled Israel for 40 years with unprecedented wisdom. And then David's line went on to produce a little boy named Jesus, who no doubt heard this very story about his ancestors, David and Bathsheba. You know, David is the one person in Scripture who is de described as a man after God's own heart. And I have to believe that it has nothing to do with his ability to lead, to strategize, to organize, to play music, to pray, or to command the military. I have to believe that he was a man after God's own heart because he just said the words, I was wrong giving God the chance to say, come home. That's what God wants to say to each of us. Come home. Just say the words and find out for yourself. Amen. Go out into God's world in peace. Have courage. Hold on to what is good. Return to no one evil for evil. Strengthen the faint-hearted, support the weak, help the suffering, honor all persons, love and serve the Lord, rejoicing in the power of the Holy Spirit. And as you go, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the power of the Spirit bless you and keep you this day, and always, always. Amen.